From Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. When the apostles heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Well, hey, good morning again and welcome to Trinity Community Church. It's really great to see you. We have been in this series on God's heart for renewal and the pursuit of revival for the last four weeks now. And over this series, one of the things I've been doing each week is reading these incredible stories of revival, things that have happened in scripture or in church history. And this week, the one that I I, I really spent time on uh, was an absolute blessing to me. And so uh, William Joseph Seymour was born in or rather 1870. Uh, an African-American. He grew up in Louisiana and spent his years uh, farming and caring for his mother and seven younger brothers and sisters. And so William Seymour grew up in, uh, in poverty, grew up in a tough situation. And then in his early 30s, he moved north and he found himself at a church in Topeka, Kansas, of all places. And so William Seymour was there for church, but being a black man uh, in the Jim Crow era, he could not even enter the auditorium. They didn't have a balcony, and so he had to sit in the lobby and listen to the preaching of the word through closed doors. William Seymour sat there in the lobby and then found himself on his knees 
under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, listening to God's Word. He felt God speaking to him in that moment, calling him into ministry, and and specifically calling him to go to Los Angeles. And so William literally got up and, and moved to Los Angeles. Only a couple of days later, in the early months of 1906, he set up a a box on the corner of Azusa Street and began to preach. He saw several people converted almost immediately, and within a matter of weeks, they began to gather together daily for prayer and scripture. In fact, I love this. They decided to study Acts chapter 2 every single day until they experienced what happened in Acts chapter 2. And it only took a a couple of months. Soon there were 1,500 people meeting in this converted space. Scores of people came to faith, rich, poor, women, men, young, old, black, white, Latino, Asian, all of them worshiping together, which was incredibly controversial that they would have a, a mixed worship gathering like this. And they continued to cry out for more and more of God's presence, more salvation, And within four years, the the Azusa Street Revival, as it's known, in just four years, they had planted churches, quote, in every region of the United States and in 50 nations worldwide. And so Seymour and and this Azusa Street Revival, you may know it because it was the spark of the entire charismatic movement, which began in California and then spread around the country. Now, this movement is, is far from perfect. I grew up in this movement myself in Kansas City. But it has planted more than a million congregations around the world, and it now accounts for 40% of the Christians in the world. And it began in the lobby of a Topeka, Kansas church with a man on his knees praying who couldn't even enter the worship gathering, who couldn't even vote. And from there, it spread. This is one of the things that I love about revival. Revivals almost always start in in the most unexpected places with the most unlikely people. And then it has this effect of of unifying people, of bringing people together for, for fellowship and prayer and for Scripture, people that would never otherwise be in the same place. Now, you might ask, why, why look back at these things? Why are we going back in history so often? Why, why don't we just preach the gospel? And, and if God wants to do something spectacular, he would. And I would say, well, it's, it's not just one or the other. It's not just preach the gospel or look back to revivals. In fact, I reject the premise, which I say all the time. Remembering is one of the most important spiritual practices we have as Christians. In fact, it's the second most frequent command in the entire scriptures. It's to remember. Remember what God has done in history. Remember how God led the Israelites out of Egypt. Remember how uh, Jesus died on the cross and and rose to, to pay the penalty for our sins and give us salvation. Remember the incredible things of the book of Acts. And so remembering is, is a sort of, of, of spiritual practice that keeps us in touch with God, whether it's through the scriptures or through church history. Studying revival is a form of gospel remembering. Tim Keller, the, the pastor and, and writer, I call him the prodigal godfather, he writes this, Revival is not a historical curiosity. It's a consistent pattern of how the Holy Spirit works in a community to counteract the default mode of the human heart. 
If it were natural or even possible for our hearts to operate consistently from the truth and life-giving power of the gospel, we wouldn't need a persistent, balanced, revivalist ministry. But of course, it isn't possible, and so we do. And so to to paraphrase the, the prayer of Habakkuk, we have heard of your works in history, Lord. Would you renew them in our day? Would you do it again? That's the prayer of this series. Today we're just looking at two things. What produces revival, and then what revival produces. So what are the things that that produce revival, and then when revival happens, what does revival produce? Those are the two things for today. Let me pray to open us up, and then we'll dive in more. Father God, we love coming into your presence together. As we've done each week in this series, we we pray that we might hear from you. You are a speaking God, a God who, who gives us your word. And would you speak to us now, Lord, because we have nothing apart from your word. Lord Jesus, our our eyes are on you now and always. You are the the author of our faith. You're the, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Would you keep us centered on you in all things, Lord? And Holy Spirit, would you come and and fill this place with your presence? Would you keep your eyes on Christ as, as you say you will do in the Scriptures? Would you fill us with joy and with peace and with a sense of worship and prayerfulness as we seek your face, O God? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, first of all, first point, what produces revival? And I'll start with a quick summary in case you, you haven't been here the last couple weeks, or maybe it's just helpful overall. But we're, we're defining renewal and revival in a consistent way each week. And so renewal is the ordinary, ongoing work of growing in Christ through the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's the ordinary, ongoing way that we grow in Christ. And then revival is that same ordinary process of renewal just intensified turbocharged, supercharged. And so revival isn't something totally separate from renewal. It's renewal gone viral, renewal spreading in an incredible way. And so we're looking at revival in particular today, but we've already seen that God's heart is for renewal. That He longs to bring renewal to our hearts and our lives and our churches and our communities. And it's our belief right now that the church in the Western world is in decline and it's in desperate need of renewal. In fact, it's ripe for revival. Now you might say, what do you mean the church is in decline? Well, and what I'm focusing on here is the church in the West being in decline because the church is, is thriving, and we described this in week one, but the church is thriving in Latin America. It's thriving in sub-Saharan Africa. It's thriving in, in parts of East Asia, China, and Japan. It's, it's thriving in parts of South Asia, India, and Indonesia, and, and Oceania. It's thriving all over the global south. And yet in so many places in the Western world, it's struggling. The Western church is often divided. It's often cold. It often has poor theology, a, a really low literacy in the Bible. And I want to show you something that I think might blow you away. The first time that I saw it this clearly, it blew me away. I have a graphic for this, so go ahead and put it up. I'm sorry that it's not fancy. You know where I come from on this. But Christianity in 1910, 
Just over 100 years ago, Christianity in 1910, according to the Pew Research Center, 67% of Christians were in Europe, 27% were in North America, and then for the sake of simplicity, less than 7% were everywhere else in the world. Now, in 2020, according to the most recent report, this comes from the World Christianity Encyclopedia, there has been staggering growth in the church in the global south. 26% of the world's Christians are now in Africa. 24% are in Latin America. 23% are in Europe. 16% are in Asia. And only 11% of the world's Christians are in North America. And so Christianity is absolutely exploding across the world, but most of this growth is happening far from the Western world. And so if you're like me, when you hear that, you get really excited and really thankful that Christianity is absolutely flourishing around the world. In places where it hadn't been previously, the, the global South is absolutely on fire with Christian growth. And yet at the same time, I am completely grieved that this incredible growth in Christianity has been without the West. That we are barely even holding steady, let alone keeping up with what God is doing around the globe. And so for, for me and, and my calling, which I believe is to the Western church, I see this, this moment in, in America just as much of global missions as anywhere else in the world. I think we have as many people coming from Kenya to America for missions as we have going from America to Kenya for missions. World missions has reached our doorstep. Like Jesus' disciples in Mark 9, we're, we're struggling to make a difference. And Jesus seems to be saying this kind, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. We need a direct intervention from Jesus. We need the very power of Jesus. Last week, Pastor Casey taught on renewal, which, which I loved how he used Psalm 1 to, to show us the, the nature of true human flourishing. This picture of a, a green tree planted by streams of water, and, and it can flourish in season and out of season because its roots go deep in the soil, and its roots can draw on the, the hidden streams of living water. So whether it's raining or not, even in a time of drought, this tree can flourish because its roots go deep and can draw up on this water. And that is the ordinary process of renewal. But today the question is, what happens when it rains? What happens when that, that tree which has been sort of sipping at the stream that's next to it, all of a sudden this tree is overwhelmed with a downpour of rain from above? What happens when, when God sovereignly sends His Spirit to descend on us like rain and it, and it supercharges all of our fruitfulness? The, the green leaves suddenly are multiplied a hundred, a thousand, a million fold. And that's what revival is. And so if I can show another graphic, what I want to show you today is what produces revival. It's four things. We're going to see this in, in Acts chapter 2. It's extraordinary prayer gospel rediscovery or reawakening, third, gospel proclamation, and fourth, the presence of God. Now we see in Acts chapter 2, right at the beginning, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
See, the, the early Christians began with extraordinary prayer. We've seen this over and over and over. We saw it every week in our, our long study in the book of Acts that whenever God's pouring out His Spirit, you can just look back a couple verses and see people gathered and praying. An extraordinary prayer is, is different from maintenance prayer or, or the kind of prayer that just kind of brings our, our daily needs before the Lord, as important and as great as that is. Extraordinary prayer is a bold seeking of God's face. It's not even necessarily seeking revival. It's seeking the face of God. And the first sign of renewal, the first step towards any revival, it's always a person or a small group of people praying. Now second, gospel reawakening is always one of the elements in true revival. When people are praying and when God begins to move, people come alive to the gospel. It could be that it was a, a church that had terrible theology, a, a group of people who didn't understand the Scriptures at all, and then they, they realize and they discover the Gospel and they put their faith in Christ. It could also be a church or a tradition where they have the best theology in the world, but it hasn't left like the textbook. It's, it's a dry and a dead orthodoxy. But then suddenly as they pray, they, they begin to become alive again to the power of the Gospel. And I love how in Peter's sermon in Acts 2, from verses 16 to 36, Peter stands up in the, in the midst of some confusion. We didn't read every verse, but it's kind of a chaotic scene when the Spirit descends. The first thing Peter does is he stands up and he, he clarifies the Gospel. This is who Jesus is. This is what we believe. This is what He has done for us. And already that's getting to the third thing, Gospel proclamation. In seeking revival, there's always a, a strong urge to communicate the gospel. Throughout history, what's interesting is that this gospel proclamation that, that leads to revival, it typically doesn't begin in the pulpits. It begins with people sharing and communicating the gospel in coffee shops, in workplaces, in, in personal conversations on street corners. It only moves into the organized church once the revival is underway. But gospel proclamation comes with urgency. We see Peter in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now the fourth element in the pursuit of revival is an emphasis on and a great seeking of the presence of God. Not just words about God, not just great truths about God, but God Himself. The, the very presence, the very face of God. People are no longer satisfied. They, they develop that holy discontent that we've talked about. And now what they are seeking and pursuing is the very presence of God. They're seeking God just for God. And they're putting themselves in a place where they can experience God's presence in a personal and a powerful way way. Now these, these four elements of revival, it's not like if you do them one, two, three, four, you're, you're guaranteed a revival. We've said from beginning to end that revival is a work of God. But if you look in the Scriptures, you look at Acts 2, you look anywhere, a true revival in church history, and you'll see these four elements before the revival. In Acts 2, we see the result of all of this in verse 41. It says, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 
And so that's, that's the revival. You can, you can think of verses 1 through 40, everything leading up to 41 as, as what produces revival. Verse 41 is, is 3,000 people coming to Christ in a day. And then in Acts 2, verses 42 to 47 shows what revival actually produces. So that's the second thing. What does revival produce? Verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So already right there, we see two elements that we've talked about already, extraordinary prayer and a reawakening around the gospel. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, which was the gospel, and to the breaking of bread and prayer together. Verse 45, it says, They sold possessions and property to give to anyone who had need. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And here we have a picture of gospel proclamation, that they enjoyed favor with the outside world and daily were sharing the gospel so that people were coming into the community. Verse 43 then says, Everyone was filled with awe, at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And so we get a glimpse of the presence of God working in their midst, the manifest presence, so the, the almost visible presence of God working through signs and wonders. And, and so I don't know if you've picked up on this, but if you see the connection, the four things that lead to revival are the exact same four things that are produced in revival. So if you want to jump to the next part, boom, there it is. What produces revival, extraordinary prayer, a recentering and proclamation of the gospel, this emphasis on the presence of God, it's only intensified and multiplied through revival. There's more prayer, more gospel, more of the presence of God. It begins to spread and it's multiplied exponentially. Seeking the presence of God creates space in our souls for an experience of the manifest presence. Of God. Now, what do I mean by the manifest presence of God? That's, that's a theological term, but it's so important. We know as Christians that, that God is, is always with us by His Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. That's, that's the regular or the ordinary presence of God. When we gather together like this, Jesus said, when two or more people are gathered in My name, I am with them. And that's a, that's a sort of empowered, a, a congregational or an ecclesial presence of God. We feel His presence even more strongly, though He's always with us. And then at certain points in time, in history, in our own experience, the presence of God is so profound, so powerful, so, so thick in our presence that you can almost see it. And often it's accompanied by these signs and wonders, miraculous things are happening, and that's what's known as the manifest presence of God a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. We see this all throughout Scripture. Think of the burning bush in Exodus. You can, you can think of the, the appearance of the Son of God in the fiery furnace in Daniel. You can think of the signs and wonders that, that exist all throughout the book of Acts. And in, in revival, we see this often. People are converted instantaneously, sometimes without even hearing the gospel proclaimed. One of my favorite revivals was in, in the Hebrides, small islands off the coast of Wales. And, and there's a story of, of this like dance party going on late at night, 
and there's you know hundreds of young people at this big, essentially it's like a club, and they're dancing, and then all of a sudden something happens in this room, and the music stops, and people are terrified, and they go running out of the room into the nearest church building, and then they wait there until the minister can be woken up and brought to preach the gospel to them. Every one of them puts their faith in Christ, and then revival breaks out across the nation of Wales. Incredible things are happen, happening. The, the manifest presence of God rests on people in revival. New spiritual gifts are given, whether they're like the ordinary ones, evangelism and service and teaching, and they're multiplied. Or perhaps it's new supernatural gifts like healing, praying in tongues, prophetic words, supernatural discernment. And, and this is where we can often become uncomfortable with revival. This is, a, this is a place where revival begins to become different than ordinary renewal, where the manifest presence of God is doing some incredible things and, and we can become a little bit uncomfortable. And, and I think rightly so, because it is out of the ordinary of our Christian experience. This is a place where revival can become manipulated or, or lose its center or get Im, imbalanced. If people are only seeking the, the incredible signs, the, the wonders, the, the miraculous gifts, without the other elements of revival, without prayer, without the centrality of the gospel, then it's not true revival. If people are only seeking the signs and wonders, but the gospel is not at the center, they're not gathered in prayer, then it probably is not true revival. Now, as for me, I'm, I'm not too worried about us getting carried away. Maybe it's because I, I am from a charismatic background. I, I grew up with like the banners and like all this stuff. Like if you come in and there's a bunch of banners in here one week, you know that was my idea. But I'm just not too worried about us getting super carried away in the supernatural stuff, and the spiritual gifts, the, the, the stuff of the Holy Spirit. This is a pretty grounded group. My fear instead is that we would, we would come together every week and just sing songs and, and hear the Bible, that we would maybe see a couple people come to Jesus, but years would go by, decades, 20, 30 years would go by, and then we'd look back and realize we had missed the most important thing that we were lacking the presence of God all along. And so I don't want to throw out God's power in fear that it might be misused or misunderstood in some way. We need to figure out how to keep this element in its place. It's meant to fit with the ordinary but still miraculous stuff of prayer in the gospel. Now, my favorite illustration here is fire. In Acts chapter 2, it says that the Holy Spirit descended with, with visible fire on the apostles and on those people in the gathering. The Spirit is often described as fire in the Scriptures. Now, fire is a, is a dangerous thing, right? Fire can burn you. It can burn down your house. It can, it can wipe out an entire forest. But the answer is not no fire. Let's get rid of all fire always. Because fire is an incredible thing. Fire is a, a beautiful thing. And in its place, in, in a fireplace, fire brings warmth and, and light to a room. 
Fire, uh, you know, in the right place, fire can bring about a a hospitable environment, a, a feeling of peace, a feeling of comfort, a feeling of warmth. And so fire in its place is a beautiful thing. And this is true of the the supernatural stuff of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit brings warmth, brings light, brings comfort. But the Spirit's fire in the Scriptures is always surrounded by the fireplace of the Gospel. When true revival is happening, it's always in the right place. It's not separated from prayer and the Gospel, but it's within the context of prayer and the gospel. And so to remain focused on the gospel and prayer is is sort of to build the fireplace, to build the right atmosphere for the fire to flourish, to, to flame brightly, and yet not burn or hurt anyone. Without fire, the room remains cold. And I, I think often of my experience in a lot of Bible teaching churches we might have an elaborate fireplace. It might be the most ornate, beautiful fireplace where you walk in and say, man, look at that fireplace. It's incredible. Do you do a lot of fires here? No, we're not really fire people. We built this magnificent structure, but, but we're worried about fire. What I want to see in our midst is a fireplace that is strong, that holds us together, and is full of the flames of the Holy Spirit. Now, I do think a lot of my charismatic brothers and sisters are trying to build a fire without the fireplace. And that too is not the answer either. But I think it's so interesting in in 1 Corinthians. If you think about it, if you've read 1 Corinthians, it's kind of like the the wild book of the New Testament. Like out of all the early churches, Corinth was like really out there. They were really into like building the fire, you know, Supernatural, the gifts of the Spirit, Corinth was, was all in on those, right? But in chapter 1, how does, how does Paul open up the letter to Corinth? He writes, To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, called to be holy people, I always thank my God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. And and I know that He will keep you firm till the end, for God is faithful. Even though they're getting so much wrong when it comes to the Holy Spirit, He opens by overflowing with thankfulness for what God is doing in their midst. He doesn't blow them up. He doesn't say, you're not doing this right. You got the order all wrong. You need to focus just on the fireplace. He begins with encouragement and thanksgiving. And then he kind of spends the next 16 chapters telling them to like, you've got to build a fireplace here. He gives them instructions. He tells them how to keep it going. He doesn't stomp it out, but he builds a fireplace. Good theology, the gospel, prayer, fellowship of the local church. And then it's like he wants to stoke the flames. He wants to, to blow on the embers. He wants this fire to burn bright. There's an old uh, quote from an American pastor. He says, it's neat and tidy in the graveyard. It's messy in the nursery. And like true fire, it's, it's not always neat and tidy. It might feel a little bit messy, but that's where life is. The goal is for, not for church to be neat and tidy. It's for the church to be a little bit of a mess with Christ in the center, cleaning it up. 
In a, in a lecture last year, Mark Sayers, Australian cultural commentator, friend of mine though we've never met, doesn't know me, I consider him a friend. He describes true revival in these terms. He said, renewals trend in two directions, form and fire. Some revivals are, are based around release. The Spirit comes with power. Stuff happens. People are collapsing, being slain by the Spirit. The Spirit moves like a nuclear bomb. Others are based around building. St. Benedict, in the midst of a cultural decline in the Middle Ages, creates order and a pattern of life in a chaotic world. Two types of renewal. He continues on, the Great Awakening was both form and fire. Just as a bird needs two wings to fly, the next movement of God in the West will be both form and fire. It needs to release and to restrain. It needs to set us free and to free us for new patterns of life. We need the Spirit to mess things up, but also to put people back together. We need a fire and for it to keep burning for several generations. So the application for this week is pretty straightforward. Four things. Extraordinary prayer. Gathering not only you know, in, in your morning quiet time, but preferably with a couple of friends, people in your community group. Maybe you do this as a group over the next few weeks. Crying out for more of God. The goal is not even to pray for revival. The goal is to pray for more of God. Seek His face. Ask for more of His presence. Second gospel, rediscovery. How can you focus on the gospel and your readings and your prayers when you're gathered with other people? What does it look like to rediscover the power of Jesus' life and death for you every single day? Third, gospel proclamation. Who has he put in your life? Who are the, the friends, the coworkers, the neighbors? We can go to them and say, yes, we're, we're exhausted. 2020 has been a, a hell of a year. We are all wiped out. CPS is trying to kill us. You know, let's probably scratch that from the recording. But it is so, so hard right now. But let me tell you about a God who meets us in that very place. Let me tell you about the God who does his best work when people are at the end of himself, themselves. Let me tell you about the Son of God sent from heaven, born as a helpless child into poverty in the Middle East, who lived a perfect life, a life that we could never live, who died in our place on the cross for our sins and rose a new life to set us free. Let me tell you about the hope that we have in this good news that has changed everything for me. Gospel proclamation. And then lastly, the presence of God. How do we cultivate a greater awareness of the presence of God? How do we seek the face of God more directly? How do we ask for more of God himself? It's like, man, don't, don't settle for like the little daily nuggets of Scripture, the little, the little bits of inspiration. I mean, you can do your Jesus calling, you can do your, you know, wash your face girls or whatever it is, but then set that aside and seek the face of the living God. 
Go to the source. Go to where the power is, where the love is, where the glory is. Go directly to God and seek His face. Pray with Isaiah, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Wait for Him in in silence. He longs to be gracious to you. And remember, I, I want to say this every week. Renewal doesn't happen when when people get their stuff together and and get it right. Renewal begins when people come to the end of themselves. It begins when people realize they have no power in themselves. And as a result, they begin to pray. They begin to reach out, to gather their friends, to remember the gospel, to seek His face. From beginning to end in the the scriptures and church history, we see that God's heart is for renewal. We can't live in a place of, of perfect ongoing renewal. It's not the default mode of the human heart. And so God longs to work in renewal in our lives. He longs to pour out revivals around prayer and the gospel in his presence. Knowing all this, knowing what God has done in history, knowing the heart of God, how would we not pray for more of this in our midst? Seeing the very heart, the face of God, why would we not ask Him to do it again? Renew your works in our day, Lord. Do it again. Let's pray.